You're listening to Coindesk's Money Reimagined with Michael Casey and Sheila Warren. Hello and welcome to Money Reimagined. I'm Michael Casey. This week, it's uh, Sheila and I just uh, doing what we do from time to time, just to sort of do a bit of a roundup of what's going on and like get in each other's heads a bit. And we are, of course, available. We can listen to us weekly on the Coindesk Podcast Network or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you've enjoyed this episode or any of our episodes, we would really like to hear from you. If you didn't like our episode, you could also talk to us and you could email us to do so at podcasts at coindesk.com with the subject line of money reimagined. As always, there's just lots going on, Sheila. Yeah. You know, we maybe we can talk a little bit later about the ongoing saga that is Sam Bankman Freed. He's in jail now, of course, but he's now had to, he's now pled not guilty to his latest indictment. There's we had some news of Coinbase acquiring a stake in Circle, which has got people intrigued. Markets aren't looking so great. Bit of a weird, wild collapse in Bitcoin. And that's, you know, obviously a determinant of all sorts of other things. But look, you you came on, I don't know, saw text messages from you before we started this. And you were obviously in a bit of a bit of a mood, a bit, a bit angry about a few <laughs> things. Yes. And you said you just want to rant about a few things. And you talked about like comparing the United States to Japan and, and maybe the regulatory framework in each country. I thought we can get you under that. But it got me thinking that maybe we should, and whenever we do these you know, two-way things, the one-on-ones, that we should just have a section just called Sheila's Rant. And, and I'm trying to think about what- <laughs> Rant the, what of the, the week. The rant, rant of the week. week. Rant of the week. And I think, <laughs> Always like, something the, to rant about. I, yes. I, I could just like, and now uh, I could bring on like a, you know, now <laughs> BBC voice. It's time for <laughs> Sheila Warren's rant. Sheila, rant oh, away. Sheila, over to you. Uh, over to you, over to you please rant yeah, away, yeah. Sheila. But your your rant that, that actually, I thought you were going to rant about you know, US v Japan. I was, but, but then it but was you joined us and you started talking about problems with, <laughs> your, so many things to with your Google connection on things that was actually undermining your ability to actually do things, which got me thinking that this is a perfectly good rant because it is a way to speak about the whole dependency on centralized platforms. So yes, yeah. Okay, let me let me just walk our listeners through the last hour of my life. So I, ha- I have a new laptop. Yay me. Hooray. That's very exciting. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was trying to do what I thought would be a fairly simple task of pairing my Bluetooth mouse with my new laptop, which you would think would just be a very simple click a couple times and things are done. No, apparently not. So in the course of this, I restarted my laptop and now I don't have access to Google Chrome. I literally cannot use Google Chrome. I can't download it unless it comes from some place, whatever, mm-hmm. this, that. Look, bottom line is without Google Chrome, what the realization I was late to our recording today because without Google Chrome on my machine, I have to use my laptop, not my phone because I have a mic and I have to plug it in, whatever. For a variety of reasons, I, I'm dependent on my laptop for our particular, for Money Imagine to record this podcast. And between Apple and Google and their willingness to interface in some ways and not others, et cetera, and then throw in Zoom, which is where we do our recordings for the podcast. I wasn't able to access my Zoom account. So then I had to like back into my Zoom in a different way. And then I had to like reset a password. It was just like, you've got to be kidding me with this. Ugh. But all of that, I think, Michael, just it's just emblematic of the problem that I think we talk about, maybe not as pointedly as this, but more generally on this show, which is we are beholden in ways we don't even realize. Like, I, I mean, I'm at a point now where, thank goodness, I've got people on the back end working on, you know, figuring out how to get me Chrome. <laughs> yeah, you've got an army of people trying to. I, I, well, I wish I, I had like one person, but regardless, I've well, got someone helping me with this, you know, who's going to figure it out on our IT support side. But without access to Chrome, I basically can't really do my job unless I'm hmm. on my phone, in which case, if I work on my phone for too long, I'm just going to like lose my eyesight, which is a whole other issue, you know? So it's just, it's just, um, <laughs> 
you're, well, you're beholden in ways we don't even understand. Because when these things function, the point is that yeah. when these things function, we don't even realize how interconnected they are. Like, I don't know that I deliberately set my Zoom account up to run through Google, but at some point I did that or, it, or someone did it for me. It's probably more likely what happened, to be very honest. But regardless, the whole thing just kind of falls apart. Mm-hmm. And yes, you can very deliberately choose. Like, I'm a very conscious about data person, right? I and mean, we've talked about this many times. So I do tend to use different kinds of browsers for other things, this and that. But when it comes to kind of hyper-efficient work product-oriented things, like we just default to the big platforms because mm-hmm. everyone else is on there. It's a lot easier. You can make different kinds of connections. We work in Google Docs, whatever it is, right? If those things don't function, the integrations are somewhat default. And if those don't function, your productivity takes a massive hit. But your ability, I think, to engage is really complicated. So it isn't even so much about data capture and control. It's about the ability to actually engage online, engage digitally in a meaningful way, which is is not, it's just, it's so beholden to these gigantic entities. And I find that today, I find it deeply irritating and annoying right. and frustrating. I want to throw my machine out the window. But as a general matter, it's highly problematic. Well, well, well the, the two are related, right? Like, it's not just that there's data capture going on. It's that they create such a level of dependency yes. and such an integration of all these other elements of your life it's that, that the data is all the more rich from their point of view and, and therefore valuable from their point of view, right? So, yeah. I mean, it is all related. But yeah, there is this convenience of the network effect of everything tied together. The one that I often think about lately is is what's happened to email. So we we often talk about how oh at least yeah. email right SMTP it's this independent protocol and you know you can send an email to anybody on any you know email server anywhere and then you know what, whatever whatever client they're using you're fine right well uh, not so sure about that anymore because <laughs> yeah. everybody yeah. has Gmail right so so many corporate accounts are now just Gmail accounts yeah. it is so big that Gmail's spam filtering system. Well, if if you if you happen to be a, from a smaller server, I mean, there's really not many left. People have Proton Mail for privacy, and there's a few Yahoo and, and a few others that are still there. Yeah. But any of the little any of the little guys, any independent email provider, um, you're going to be interpreted by Gmail's spam server as spam and just pushed out into the. Yep. Uh, so you're not going to get your stuff read because you're not using. So there's this backdoor way in which Google has created control of what we thought was a at least an architecturally far more decentralized system. And that is problematic in addition to all of the other ways in which Google just sits there in the middle of our lives. When you're using Waze in your car, yeah. it's Google. If you've got Google uh-huh. Home, yep. you know, it's On Google. And you know, of course we can say the same about Amazon with you know Alexa and Prime and AWS and, and everything else. But this is the reality. We've built these dependencies. In yeah. fact, you know, as as the, anybody who listened to last week's episode will now know, I'm actually in the middle of writing a book with Frank McCourt. As I said then, more information will come about what it's really going to be about, but maybe it's going to come out in a drip form because I'll just offer this little tidbit. I mean, I'm just in the process of working on a chapter to try to like give it a little bit more context to what we mean in the book by this concept of of being a, a subject or a vassal in a sort of a, a new modern form of feudalism, as opposed to being a citizen in a kind of republic and a democracy. That, yeah. you know, given that our information system is like, fundamental to who we are as a society, like it's critical to democracy, it's critical to a free market. If that information system is so controlled by these powerful platforms, 
and that they are using that data to then actually feed back on you to sort of direct you to what to read and what to say and how to behave and all that behavior modification stuff, which by now is very well documented, by the way, then in effect, we are, we've lost agency. We've lost our, our citizenship, yeah. right? So well, this it, is this concept yeah. of digital feudalism. And I think one of the ways to describe it is this, right? It's the same way that like, oh, you can't actually go to this part of the country unless the king lets you go there or, uh, you know, this dependency on the say-so of some powerful lord is is very similar to to I think what we're at here right now and that's a cause for great concern. I completely agree and I think what's what's really even more disturbing about it is unlike physical feudalism right where that there are boundaries and markers and you physically could not cross like here it's it's very invisible. And so mm-hmm. to your point about about Gmail's ubiquity you know I don't think most people think, I mean, most people know this, but I don't think people really realize that your domain name does not say anything about the corporate master behind the email account, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah. uh, most most companies, to your point, in tech do use a Google interface. And so they have their own domain name of their own company. It's going to be whatever.com or whatever.org or whatever it is, but that's all run on the back end by Google. It's a Google account. It's all a Google workspace. Mm-hmm. And that's very common in tech, and, and and unless you're a competitor of Google, in which case you have your own interface that you're using, right? Microsoft being a great example of this. But regardless, I mean, there is almost complete capture of, of, of many parts of the ecosystem through that functionality, not to mention servers. AWS servers come up with some regularity, but the idea is that most companies are backended into an AWS server. AWS is actually a bigger uh, portion of, my, of Amazon's profits than um, Amazon, than the brick and mortar, the kind of the retail yeah. uh, facing part. And you can imagine, I mean, given how often the, the frequency of how people use Amazon.com to buy things, you can imagine if that's like a drop in the bucket compared to what AWS is making in terms of, of, uh, uh, of gross profit. It's just, it's pretty wild to think about that. But our entire digital infrastructure is really dependent in ways that when they break down, it's like, I have a day like I'm having today, you know, it's, it's really abundantly in your face and obvious how problematic that is. But when it functions well, it's something that is pretty invisible in ways that I think, mm-hmm. you know, regular feudalism, if you will, you know, was pretty in people's faces. It was a pretty yeah. obvious system. This is invisible to a lot of people. You don't think about it until it breaks down. And when it breaks down, yeah. you're just annoyed about it and you're frustrated because, you know, you can't, like, I'm a person who's incapable of not contextualizing things. But I think most people in my position today would just be very irritated and want to just fix it and move on. Yeah. Yeah. Without I'll, the reflection necessarily about, on you know yeah. what it means, right? Right. We were talking before like how this is actually very different from say a regular tool breaking down, right? This is not yeah. just getting a flat tire on your car and being annoyed with that, uh, but but I think most people will see it that way. They'll just go, oh, damn it, my my, yeah. you know this this, this temporary this, the dishwasher's got some that's you know right. problem with the <laughs> the detergent uh, rinsing function, and that's it, right? But no, it's yeah. actually a very clear reflection of the dependencies that we're talking about. I'm glad you mentioned Amazon because we should recognize this is not just one company. There are yeah. a, a few of them that have these particularly powerful roles. But I'm going to go back to Google because I was thinking as you were saying this, one of the ones that like back in January, of course, there was the uh, the ruling from the Department of Justice that sued Google successfully for monopolizing digital advertising technologies. Right. And, and And like, yes, now there's been a response to that, thankfully. But it's just the very fact that we managed to create this system, I think, is one of the most clearest reflections of this power, right? So again, Google controls Chrome. Google is is controls search. And so every aspect of how we actually find things and therefore all of the, the ways in which every single website is incentivized 
through search engine optimization, which is a buzzword that we journalists have to deal with every single freaking day. SEO. Um, SEO is designed to keep that Google algorithm happy. So all we are, we are shaping the way we design our content and curate our content specifically to keep Google happy. So that's on the content side. But how is our content monetized? Well, regardless of whether or not it is on Google, it's like, you know, like it's not just Google ads, but our own ads themselves have to really play to the yeah. sort of the big Google network. So our content and our ads, because there's the, there's the Google ad exchange, which ha- has a sort of a domination of ad network technology to, to actually broker the, the, the amount of space that's taken up inside the whole real estate of the internet by bringing the sell side uh, components together with the buy side, right? You've got folks who are publishers trying to give, sell that space and you've got folks who want to buy media space. Google sits right in the middle of it because it's engineered this perfect ecosystem in which you have no choice but to sit in the middle of it. Why this isn't looked upon as something that is, I don't know, 10, 20 times worse than Standard Oil was or you know, rubber barons and the uh, the thing that led to the antitrust movement and you know Teddy Roosevelt's very important laws at the turn of the century, it, it baffles me. We've never seen anything like this level of monopolistic control over uh, over our economy. Well, I think it is in part because a lot of it is, as we were discussing, it's it's somewhat invisible. People don't really realize the interconnections and the way that this, you know, it kind of reminds me of this show 30 Rock, which probably most of our listeners are familiar with. Mm-hmm. And there was this running joke of like the corporate map, right, of of 30 Rock and who owned the studio and, and the fact that they owned like, was it microwaves or whatever it was? But it all <laughs> rolled up to this one central company and Alex Baldwin character, which Jack Donaghy was his character, would joke a lot about the fact that everything rolled up to this one company and there were all these different things. And they were all, you know, they would do um, product placement of the other kinds of, you know, parts of the company and whatnot. But when it comes to our online world, people just don't really they don't even understand the different things that go into making these services possible, right? And how they all interconnect. Mm-hmm. And I also think that there is an element of uh, just straight up embarrassment. Like I think most people, you know, like like I am beyond this in my personal life, but I'd say probably a decade ago, if, when everything failed on my laptop like this morning, I would have been like, oh my God, it's user error. Um, I did something wrong. I messed it up. Now I'm like, no, it's, I know it's not me because I'm sophisticated as, a, as an internet user at this point. And I know what is me and what what is a, PEPCAC issue, as they say, problem exists between keyboard and computer, right? And what is not? Mm-hmm. And I know this is not. But in many cases, people feel a level of tech illiteracy or embarrassment around it because they don't understand it. They don't. They, mm. they know they don't understand it. They don't really get it. There's nothing visual about it that you can really process. You just know it's not working and you feel an immediate, it's part of partially the addiction of it. You feel stress. You feel a tremendous amount of stress that you're not able to get this thing to function. And then you feel, I think, according with that embarrassment and shame. And this has been documented by many sociologists that when people's tech is not working, they feel shame and embarrassment in ways they don't hmm. feel when their microwave fails or they get a flat tire or whatever. They don't have that level yeah. of anxiety and shame That's around really it, which they do, right? Which they have when their online well, so tools you, aren't working. It's another form of control in, in terms yeah. of like, um, like tr- trust us, we got this because we know you don't get this. Like that differentiation is dividing, right. dividing. You don't understand this. You don't and you can't. You have to trust right? and you can't, right? So, and we build up that, even if you could easily just by building up that expectation that you can't, by holding out these tech geniuses as sort of the lords of everything, you can only yep. only ones who can get it. We build that expectation, and therefore we um, ultimately lock ourselves into again more dependency. I think that that's well. And what problem. I find 
even more challenging about this, right? Like just to take this out, go out even one more layer is when we think about how this is affecting a lot of the ways that elites think about education and not just elites, but really, but the way that the focus on technical mastery, being a coder, all this stuff is now considered you know, uh, the pinnacle of educational achievement in many ways. And there's some backlash against this around liberal arts education. You need to have other kinds of skills and talents and creativity, and all those kinds of things that really matter. I think anyone who's been in tech for a long time will tell you that the EQ component is the thing that really makes or breaks a career in tech, not so much your technical ability or capacity to, to do things like code. Nevertheless, the emphasis on that, I think, on the one hand, it's important to be competitive, right, in the global economy. That is certainly an important thing. But the overemphasis, I would say, on it it reinforces this concept. So A, as demographics get older, there's a sense that, well, I'm too old to understand this. It's too complicated for me, you know, whatnot. My oldest kid and I are watching this show called Abbott Elementary. Highly recommend. It's phenomenal. But we're going back and I'm rewatching Abbott Elementary. It's fantastic. Mm -hmm. It won 10 billion Emmys. We're going back and rewatching season one and it's really funny. But there's an older teacher who's been teaching for many, many years. And there's an episode we just watched last night that's called something like tech or whatnot, new tech or something like that. And they bring in this uh, tablets, right? And they're like, this is how you're going to teach your kids to read. They're going to use these tablets and you're going to do all this stuff. And the older teacher, who's probably in her I don't know, 40s or whatnot, she's not that old, but relatively speaking, you know, she is like, I don't know how to do this. So she just kind of like does an end run around the technology and winds up coding in that her kindergartners are reading at like fourth grade level. Okay. So of mm -hmm. course there's an assembly and they want to prove it's really funny. It's a great episode. Mm -hmm. But in part of it, you know, I think she talks about having a Hotmail account, all this stuff, right? But I was watching that and I was thinking, about this idea that we have basically created a generation of people and we've kind of told them and shamed them into thinking that they are just not capable of understanding these technologies. And in countries, I think, where you're getting older and older versus younger and younger, there's this kind of flip, right? This flip has happened where not only do we prize youth and vigor and all that kind of thing, but we also think there's something about their brains that makes them more capable of understanding how a computer works yeah. or how a, an online which is just absolute nonsense. That's just completely untrue. It makes no sense whatsoever. If anything, the logic that uh, underlies how a lot of these systems work is something that age and experience actually are helpful in, in comprehending, right? Because you understand systems, you can be a systems thinker the older that you get. So uh, I find all of this kind of cultural framing of tech and our dependence on tech equally challenging to how complicated tech itself is, which well, is not to say that tech is not complicated. It, it is to some extent, but it's not, it's not, yeah. unparsable by anyone, frankly. We hit on something there that I think is really, uh, and I do want to get to to another quick rant before we go, because I'm going to run this out, but to, to a different topic. But but I, you said systems Rant thinking, all day, right? my friend. System <laughs> thinking, which I think is really important here, because to me, the biggest insight that I think I've had, and I really do believe that being in the blockchain space has allowed me to think about these things, about what is wrong with this Web2 world, these mm. centralized platforms, is the business model, right? Is the idea that there are literally incentives amongst everybody to keep drilling down on this model and building out essentially a system of data extraction, you know, this, this abusive, manipulative system that we have, because it pays, because everybody's locked into that system. And I don't, and I think one of the things that I find talking to my daughter sometimes about this is that she knows there's something big, bad, and, and, and wrong about this. And yeah, she, yeah. she gets tech as well. And she's comfortable using you know, a whole range of technology. But she doesn't have that economic understanding, I don't think, of business models of thinking through right. about well, yes. what is, what's driving Wall Street, what's driving capital, where is the actual profit motive that's driving all this. That is definitely something that you acquire as an older person, right? And so in some respects, what you're talking about as well 
is a system that prevented those of us who have that knowledge, that EQ, that that broader knowledge of systems, from being able to then apply it to this model. Oh, it's it's tech. I, I can't. I couldn't. Yeah. But you know what? If you would have, how could that I possibly? Back, yeah, you yeah. would see the same old stuff, right? Yeah. That we've seen for years that drives business decisions, that leads to these extractive, broken systems. That's yeah. kind of where the book's going to be all about. By the way, anyway, look. The segue I'll try to pull off here is, of course, I thoroughly believe we need not just blockchain technology, but a range of other decentralizing mechanisms that will require perhaps some centralization as well, but to redesign this whole thing. And that's where the policy challenges come into place because we really need to be thinking creatively about enabling these technologies to develop in the right environment to emphasize what's truly decentralized. And of course, you know, you've been looking at different models around the world uh, and the U.S. is is really lagging. I and I keep writing about it, and um, and so yep. now we've got Japan somehow strangely leading the way here. <laughs> well, that was saying. my original rant. So I just got back from family vacation in Japan. Ten out of ten, eleven out of ten, recommend. Phenomenal. It was really amazing, even with the really little kids. Um, and part of the reason it was so incredible is just the infrastructure. And so not only I immediately noticed a couple of things since my last trip, which was in 2019, which is a work trip. A, the transit system has gotten even more efficient and effective, which is remarkable considering mm-hmm. in the United States, our transit is just, I mean, yay, infrastructure bill and all of that. Like, but that's a long time coming. And, and oh my God, that's a whole mm-hmm. battle. It's going to be fought and how that all gets implemented. But, uh, you know, grateful for at least a step in the right direction, but also the accessibility. Uh, just the way that accessibility is is modeled into urban design is something I just found remarkable. And I live in San Francisco and we're pretty thoughtful about these things here. But it is, my kids were asking like, oh, why is there this thing there? Why is this thing over here? Why is there this sound? Or why is there this bumpy, you know, thing in the road or whatever it is? And I was like, that's all for people who are visually impaired, mm. right? And it's just built into urban design in a way that I found remarkable. I, I don't think I've seen that as prominently a feature of urban design anywhere my, my, else. My co-author, Frank McCourt, would be loving, I mean, he's going to get to listen to this, this episode. He'd be loving to hear this because this is this idea about yeah. building architecture with people in mind, right? That's exactly As opposed right. to the company that runs things. It's truly human-centered, right? And part of that look is the demographics in Japan. We talked about demographics. And the internet was built for machines, not humans. This is one of the problems. Yeah. That's exactly right. So looking at, I mean, AI, for that matter, was built as a tool to help, you know, make, it's machine learning, right? So just put there, <laughs> leave it there and say what you will. I think, though, that there's a demographic thing there. There are older people in Japan. It's an older demographic. There are fewer and fewer children. Uh, being born in Japan to the point that the government's providing incentives for people to actually have more children to kind of try to alter and adjust the demographics. Uh, so there's a real practical need for this. But imagine if this were the default in everywhere in the world. I mean, it, sh- it should be. There's really no reason. And I looked a little bit, because I'm a nerd, into the kind of cost you know, structure behind all of that. And it's marginal. It's negligible if you do it from the beginning and do it intentionally. So I- I've always loved Japan. I used to run an office in Japan and have major Japanese colleagues in my last role. Um, and we, of course, have engaged in Japan at CCI as well, because uh, to the to your point that you were making earlier, it is quite robust and thoughtful in how it's thinking about crypto regulation in ways that I find very impressive, especially around NFTs uh, and stablecoin as well. Uh, but regardless, I hadn't been there as like a tourist, you know, and as like a regular person in quite some time. And it was just a remarkable experience. And I, I can't say that I came back uh, overly impressed by the American offerings <laughs> in these in these areas like infrastructure and accessibility which I have not been, you know, historically, but I was even more deeply unimpressed when when I was faced with the 
parallel option of what could be with a little bit of mm. imagination, a little bit of political I'd, will. I'd love it. to really understand some of the aspects of Japanese culture that that makes this sort of instinctive recognition of building for use and for humans uh, so like automatic almost. Because there's one little example that I just thought was so fascinating. If you walk through the streets of Tokyo and look down, I don't know if it's right across the city, but certainly in, in, in a number of them, you'll see manhole covers in the, sometimes in the footpath. And each one has its own little design with yeah. colors and artwork yep. in it. Somebody yep. decided that it would be of interest to the society to have artwork that was differentiated across each of the manhole covers, right? That, that's a unique thing to decide yeah. to do. And it's, it's, it's a lovely a, thing to decide. It's a to lovely do, right? thing to decide to do, right? It, it brings a whole new experience to being walking outside and looking down and being part of the, 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 the environment yeah. that you're in, right? It's, it's fascinating. It's something really quite magical about that capacity. I mean, look, Japan's got lots of problems as well. Let's not get Yeah, no, cul- no culture, no country is perfect. Uh, but on an infrastructure you know. level, it was really hard to argue with the manifestation of a vision that really did put people and their needs at the center of the plot. You know, there's a, a place uh, called the, the Shibuya, Shibuya Crossing, which is the busiest intersection in the entire world. It's like they got the most uh, foot traffic of any intersection, apparently, in the entire world. And so we, of course, my kids wanted to see that and they wanted to cross it multiple times and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And it just functions. It just functions. And you look across a city like that and you think about what that would look like in, in many other cities in the world. And it's, it's uh, suffice to say, it's not the same experience. <laughs> just not the same yeah. experience. Right. It's organized. Part of that's cultural. Part of that is a cultural politeness, which has its own challenges, right? I'm not here Mm. to say that I'm not here to to laud any particular aspect of that or anything else. I think there's, you know, individualism is not as highly prioritized. That has its own challenges. But nevertheless, just from a straight up urban infrastructure perspective, it was pretty hard to argue with how it functioned, how it was maintained, how efficient it was. All of those things I found not only admirable, but really um, compelling. And so, Coming back, I have to say, uh, you know, I, I'll be in D.C., New York and San Francisco. And none of those cities, uh, I'm sorry to say, have anything to compete right. with uh, yeah, with what Tokyo's got on offer. So there you have Alrighty, it. There, there you is. have it. Well, that was actually <laughs> less of a rant and more of a kind of a bit of a... Wistful know, observation. Wistful, yeah. And a, and, a, and a little bit of an acknowledgement, a love song, if you like, almost to Japan, which is, I I, I must say, I, I love the place, the food. I love going to those little cocktail bars where the guy will spend like, you know, 10 minutes gently stirring you a martini. Yeah. Uh, no, there's something very, really unique about it. All right. I'll wrap up there. Hopefully this meandering conversation uh, has actually landed in a place that our uh, listeners found. Useful. Hopefully it'll, it'll lead to people thinking a little bit more inten- about intentionality. When I think so, about Japanese culture, the number one thing that comes up to me is intentionality and intentionality and in how we engage online intentionality and in how we engage with each other intentionality and how we build in our infrastructure, both digitally and physical, uh, all those things I think can only benefit us as a society. And I just don't know that that is a, uh, I think the intentionality is there uh, in our digital environment based out of the US, but it is Mm -hmm. intentionality to your point around a particular business model, which is not one that necessarily puts people and their needs and their desires at the center of, of anything. Well, the connection between the two ideas is the physical infrastructure in Japan being yeah. built with its intentionality for humans. And like we need to really start to think heavily about the infrastructure of the internet, our our digital infrastructure exactly. being built with humans uh, in mind. And, and that is a major challenge that every one of us needs to be confronting right now. Okay. Yeah. 
let's leave it at that. We didn't get to talk about Sam Bankman Free. We didn't talk about the Bitcoin price. Those of you who are looking for that, read Coindesk. There's loads of great material on that, uh, as always, because you know it's the one-stop shop for all, all of this vital important information. Uh, a little bit of a housekeeping note for, for everybody. Since I am writing a book, just so you all know, uh, those of you who are subscribers to my newsletter that comes under the same name, uh, Money Reimagined, um, thank you for doing so. Uh, unfortunately, I'm putting on a hiatus for a little while. So if you're not getting in there wondering where it is, uh, it will be back. But I, I need to kind of get this, uh, this this book project done. The podcast will continue every week. Don't worry. This is Sheila and I doing this. Uh, we're never going to stop, okay. Sheila. This will go on to where like, I don't know, 105 I mean, I'll be each. dialing in from, um, you know, wherever I need to <laughs> dial in from when I'm 80. <laughs> with, with, with hopefully not a Google Chrome problem at that time. Um, but otherwise, yes, just uh, st stick with us. It's great to have you around. And if you do have anything to say about this episode or any other ones, of course, uh, you can reach us at podcasts at coindesk.com, subject line Money Reimagined. And certainly, you know, tell it to all your friends, subscribe. You can listen to us weekly here on the Coindesk. Uh, podcast network uh, or wherever you get your podcasts that's all for now bye you're listening to money reimagined with michael casey and sheila warren today's show was edited and produced by michelle Mousseau. our theme song is the news tonight by shimmer we would love to hear from you. Please reach out to us at podcast at coindesk.com, subject line, Money Reimagined, or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. Thanks for listening. 